and the lot fell on Matthias. What a strange way to talk about choosing someone to make up the numbers. And that's just what they were doing in Luke's account of the very early days in the life of this relatively small breakaway group in the ongoing life of Judaism. It was only about five or six weeks after the Passover when the Jewish authorities thought that they had dealt with that troublesome rabble-rouser from Galilee by goading the Roman authorities into putting him to death. But there were rumours that he wasn't dead, and over a hundred of his followers were still meeting most days in the temple. Only Luke, among the Gospel writers, apart from the a later suspect ending to Mark, says anything much about what happened after the resurrection. And only Luke tells us about the ascension, which the Christian tradition celebrates 10 days before the Feast of Pentecost. Also known by them, by the way, as the Feast of Weeks. <laughs> and will be celebrated by Christians next Sunday as the occasion of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Jesus' followers. So our story is set in that in-between time when after the appearances of the risen Lord and his return to his father, his followers are waiting in Jerusalem, just as he instructed, to receive the empowering for their mission to spread the good news to the very ends of the earth. So what sort of group was this? We know that they were mainly men and women from Galilee who had begun following Jesus during his three-year itinerant ministry and had gathered others along the way in that final journey to Jerusalem. I find it interesting that the representatives of the church who put together the three-year lectionary or list of Sunday readings, now widely followed in many denominations around the world, started today's reading at verse 15, leaving out the previous verse which we heard. I think it makes an important contribution to the story. All of these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women. Otherwise you'd think that they were all men. Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. So, key among the 120 gathered gathered believers were not only the 11 remaining of disciples chosen by Jesus to be his apostles, but also his family and the women, who Luke also tells us supported them financially. In chapter 8 of his gospel, he writes, he went on through the cities and villages. The 12 were with him, as well as some women, Mary called Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. Interesting. That's how they tended to survive, the support of the women who had financial resources. Now that raises all sorts of interesting questions, but we're not going to go there today. Now it's probably important as part of the background to clarify a couple of terms. Disciple and apostle. You need to understand that all Jewish boys were taught by the village rabbi 
and learned the law and the prophets off by heart by the age of 12. That's quite an achievement, and that was what was expected. That's when they had their bar mitzvah. They still have it at age 12, so far as I'm aware. They were examined to determine whether their grasp of the law and the prophets was good enough for them to be regarded as an adult and take their place in their father's line of work. However, the brightest and the best were chosen by the rabbi to continue their education by learning the remaining writings held to be holy by the Jews. So that's virtually the whole Old Testament committed to memory. Every adult, not every adult male, but uh, many of the adult males could do that. However, at age 16, all but the best of the best were released to earn a living. The remaining ones became disciples to follow the rabbi, learn to be like him, to teach his interpretation of the scripture. That was called his yoke. Take my yoke upon you is, is actually about Jesus' interpretation of the scriptures. That's another story. That is what Jesus chose the twelve to be when he chose them to be his disciples, to follow him, to learn from him, and to take over the job that he was doing. That's what, it, what the word disciple actually means. And that explains the criteria set out by Peter when he started the process of finding a replacement for Judas to take his allotted share in this ministry, he said. It had to be someone who had virtually served the same apprenticeship as had the other 11, had accompanied them in following Jesus from the baptism of John until the day he was taken from them. And the task? To become one of the witnesses to the resurrection. And that leads us to the meaning of the word apostle. It wasn't a special position or status. It just meant someone who has been chosen to be sent out on a task or carry a message. It's from the Greek word apostolos, meaning someone who is sent off. Google will tell you that the more general meaning of the word is translated into Latin as missio, from which we get the English word mission. The New Testament actually uses the term in different ways, but one thing is clear. Someone sent as an apostle did not have the authority to pass on the role to anyone else. They couldn't appoint a successor. It seems to me, as a side note, that over the centuries the church has lost sight of the original meanings and used these terms somewhat indiscriminately. In the early days of the church, not all the believers who followed Jesus were regarded as disciples, and only he could appoint his apostles. That's why Paul had some difficulty in claiming the authenticity of his own commissioning as an apostle. But back to the context of our story. 
Not only was there this group of 12 trained by Jesus to carry his message and become, in effect, the new Israel, but among them, there were the three closest to Jesus, whom he once took up the mountain on which he was transfigured. They were Peter, James, and John. So it is that Peter assumes the role of leader, both in deciding what needs to be done about the vacancy left by Judas, and later in explaining to the startled populace what was happening when the Spirit came at Pentecost. However, although the text gives him the role of spokesman, you get the impression that the Twelve acted more like a council of elders, which is how a synagogue was run. Now here, the text is ambiguous. In response to Peter's speech, it says they chose two who filled the criteria. But it doesn't indicate who did the choosing. They could have been the whole 120, or maybe just the 12. We don't know. Chances are, though, that there were only two among them who had been with Jesus from the beginning. Joseph and Matthias. And somehow they had to choose between them. So lots were cast, and the lot fell on Matthias. But how were lots cast in those days? There's almost no evidence to tell us what the process was. Did they flip a coin? Or did they use dice? Certainly the Roman soldiers of the day were known to carry dice and probably used them to decide who should get the seamless garment Jesus had been wearing up to his crucifixion. These days we frequently toss a coin in sports to decide which cricket team will bat first or which rugby team will kick off whereas dice are much more likely in family table games, as well as in gambling. But it's hard to imagine a company choosing between job applicants by either means. Flip a coin? <laughs> Let alone in the church. HR departments are well-versed in leadership development, and uh, while we have TV shows like The Apprentice, that has little to do with the time-honoured method of learning a trade or the Hebrew practice of training future rabbis. If you aspire to being a teacher these days, you go to university or teacher's training college to obtain the appropriate qualification. And when seeking a position of senior leadership, you can be sure the appointing panel will be looking to assess much more than your qualifications and experience they will be trying to assess what, in their view, are the qualities of a good leader. Now, there seem to be many lists of the five top qualities in a good leader. They include such things as communication, vision, integrity, people skills, passion, commitment, self-awareness, ability to delegate. Hey, that's eight already. And there's more with no one list of five being the same as any other. Certainly, some things appear again and again. Now, while these are certainly good, and we would be wise to use them in the church, wouldn't we be looking for something more? What would we want to add as qualities to someone 
we were choosing for leadership in the church. You might like to talk to someone next to you for a few minutes and discuss what the issues might be that you would be looking for, what sort of people to ask, what sort of character or whatever. Okay, it's quite an interesting topic, and I'm not going to ask for responses. Although it might be hard to accurately describe what we think is important, in one way or another, those factors that you have been discussing come into our minds when we are, for example, choosing a new minister or electing people to the parish council or voting on who should be the next moderator at the General Assembly or President of Conference, or any time we are actually involved in choosing a leader. While all this may seem far removed from the time when the lot fell on Matthias, the leaders of the early church were clear about the need for setting out the appropriate criteria, and so should we. Many of you may know that I am a life member of the Order of Ecumenical Franciscans based in the United States. It's what is known as a third order. Young men began following the simple approach to Christian living espoused by Francisco of Assisi. That became the first order. Later, a rich young woman named Claire ran away from home in Assisi to join Francisco, so he formed a second order. Well, she said, uh, that's not going to work. Uh, we're celibate and we uh, just travel around. Um, so he decided to start a third order for people who could live the Christian life in his way as they went about their regular daily life. Our order has a two-year formation program and a week-long annual meeting. At the first one I attended, one day was set aside to elect the new council, instead of using the common method of nominations and voting, which had led to some tensions in previous years. Every one of the 80 members was eligible, other than the few who wished to withdraw their names. And it had already been decided that would be a council of five, two men, two women, and one other of either gender. The morning was spent as members prayerfully sought to identify, without discussion, the five people they felt should make up the council and without
out into consideration at that stage of what's in there. At the end of the morning, the results were compiled and uh, a list drawn up of uh, the ones that had been recommended. After lunch, members were given until afternoon break to discern from that shorter list their choice of two men, two women, and one other. The scrutineers went away to uh, collate the results, returning to say they had the names of two men, two women, and two others <laughs> who had equal votes. What did we want to do? Well, it took a while to decide. Stick with six? That was talked and discussed, but in the end it was found it could too easily lead to division with equal numbers. It's quite helpful to have an odd number. Ask the two to decide themselves. Um, that again was discussed, but that didn't seem fair. Uh, I mean, what would they use? And who would give away to whom? It just it seemed too much of a burden to lay upon them. How about what the early church had done in Acts? Toss a coin. There was some hesitation expressed <laughs> and more prayer. But in the end, they chose to follow the biblical example. The scrutineers went away again and returned with the names of two men and three women. And the comment that the first time they flipped the coin, it had landed on its edge. <laughs> it took a little longer than the usual process. But there were no speeches, no debates, and the team that was chosen worked wonderfully well together. God bless, we would say. So, whenever the church needs to choose leaders, we can with confidence apply the best principles derived from secular human resource experience but if Luke's little story of the early church has anything to teach us about choosing leaders, it is that a life lived close to Jesus is of primary importance, along with time for prayerful discernment, and not to avoid the occasional use of such unbiased pragmatism as flipping a coin. Let the lot fall where it may.